and he covered himself in lighter oil and set himself on fire on the street in downtown city Bouzid, right in front of the courthouse. And his self-immolation was not the first. Other young people had self-immolated as a form of protest before him and after him. But for various reasons, Bouazizi's suicide really hit a nerve. back, JT. We are. Welcome to the ninth episode of Global. It's great to be back, Sinclair. Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode where we deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. Today, we're talking about a country in your area of expertise. Yes, finally. I get to show off a little bit. You get to, That's right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Tunisia. This is a, really a country that I think you've worked on for quite some time. Yeah, I think uh, three years. Tunisia is the only country to come out of this series of democratically leaning revolutions in 2011 as a true democracy. Of course, they're still going through that transition, yeah. but. Well, as someone who used to work in Egypt and uh, had to leave in a hurry, uh, I, I would probably back you on that assessment. So, absolutely. So, Sinclair, tell us some more about Tunisia. Give us some fast facts. So, first of all, Tunisia is located in northern Africa, um, bordering the Mediterranean Sea, and it is situated right in between Algeria and Libya. In geographic area, it's slightly larger than Georgia, the country. It has a population of about 11 million, around the same as Cuba. It's a homogenous country. Uh, about 98% of the population is Arab. Okay. And 99% um, Sunni Muslim. Okay. So the government in Tunisia is a parliamentary republic. The official language is Arabic, but about two thirds of the population also speak French due to the history of uh, colonial French, yeah. right? Uh, and some minority of the population also speak Tamazigh, which is a language spoken by so well. Berbers. Thank you. It's I did. better than my Swahili. Remember that <laughs> episode? Yeah, this is really good. I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> do you have uh, so? Do you have any words for us? Give I, us I did take a, a little bit of Arabic, but I like um, in Tunisia instead of saying shukran for um, thank you, they say aishik which is like your life. Uh, I don't know why that means thank you, but it's really nice and pretty, I think. All right. Learn something new every day, yep. folks. Yep. All right. So tell us more. And then I have a couple of historical facts for you. Tunisia is famous for being the seat of the Carthage Empire, which fought Rome, you know, Hannibal, the mountains and the Alps and all that. And there's still actually a neighborhood in Tunis, the capital, called Carthage. So um, it's cool. You can still, you can go see the ruins and... Uh, you know, just envision that you're back in Roman times. So was it, there was like a battle in Gladiator the movie in Carthage. There was? Yeah. Oh yeah, there was the arena fight, right? Yeah. That was. Yeah. Well, we're always making reference to Star Wars movies in this uh, podcast, yeah. so we need to do some other movies. Okay. No, no, we got to give a shout out to Zane Joseph Kicken, who actually guessed right um, about Tunisia based on our Star Wars hint in the last episode. Ah, Tatooine. Yes, Tatooine. So Tatooine, uh, known to many people as the desert planet where Luke Skywalker comes from. <laughs> you should see is, our producer right now. He's very happy. Is um, actually a, a region in Tunisia in the south, um, also desert. And um, that is actually where uh, many of the Star Wars movies were filmed, all of them except for The Empire Strikes Back. Speaking of Roman times, actually, um, what I thought was really cool is that Africa, the word, actually is the Roman name for the province that included Tunisia. Okay. So right after the Romans 
beat the Carthaginians and they took over the area, um, they called it Africa. So that's where we get the whole word for this. The continent Africa is from Tunisia. So Africa came from Tunisia. Yeah. Wow. Which is crazy because Tunisia is such a small little country just at the top. So, um, and I guess I I also really need to mention that Tunisia is the fourth largest olive oil producer in the world. Gotta Uh, love the olive oil. It's very important to the Tunisian economy. Yeah. And often- And to to bread dipping. Yeah. Uh, don't right. hate on bread dipping. It's no, really I don't hate. I love it. Yeah. Uh, it's better than butter. <laughs> I would agree. Heart healthy, right? Yeah. It's all about heart health. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, we have Monica Marks joining us. Yeah. Monica Marks is a really well-respected Tunisia expert. She's lived in the country for many years, um, and she's currently a visiting fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. And she's a PhD candidate at you know the little-known University of Oxford um, and a Rhodes Scholar. Hi, Sinclair. And we also have Aya Chebi. Tell me more about Aya. Yep, Aya Chebi. She's an award-winning Pan-African feminist activist. A lot of things there. And a co-founder of the Voice of Women initiative. And she's also a founding chair of the Africa Youth Movement. I'm really excited to have her on this episode to get a good youth perspective on Tunisia today. Hi. Good. Nice meeting you all. And then, of course, the, the great uh, Scott Mastic of IRI. Cleveland native. He joined IRI in 1998 uh, as an intern. And today he is the director of the Middle East and North Africa division at IRI. Wow. What do you get at 20 years at IRI? What, do you get like a pen? I get or? interviewed for a podcast, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it so took far. that long, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Scott participated in the observation of Tunisia's October 2011 elections, and he has a master's from the George Washington University Elliott School and a bachelor's from the Ohio State University, a fact that he won't let anybody forget. Well, Sinclair, we have a great lineup. Uh, I really look forward to this episode. Let's get started. Yes, let's do it. Monica, could you please tell us about the period of French colonization? Sure. So Tunisia was a French protectorate from 1881 until 1956. Tunisians experienced the French protectorate as a period of colonialism and domination. And there was an actual war for independence, um, which lasted throughout um, the late 1930s, 1940s, and into the early 1950s. Um, the independence struggle, which did um, result in you know, some military skirmishes and deaths. Probably the most important um, changes that happened in Tunisia during the French protectorate period were changes to the language of Tunisia um, and the kind of structure of elite society. Um, French became the administrative language and it became the language that you needed to know in Tunisia to advance um, up the middle classes into the elite classes. Could you tell us a little bit about how Tunisia gained its independence in 1956. This struggle brought together many disparate sides of the Tunisian political, um, religious, and social spectrums. At various points, leaders of the independent struggle were either assassinated by or captured by the French uh, colonist forces, including a man named Farhat Hashed. He was assassinated by the French. Um, in the early 1950s, and also Habib Bourguiba and Salah Ben-Yusuf. Now, these two men, Bourguiba and Ben-Yusuf, were both leading figures in the nationalist struggle, but they represented pretty different sides of um, Tunisian society. So Bourguiba was a Sorbonne-educated Francophone lawyer who had come back from France with a um, child out of wedlock and a French girlfriend. (laughs) And Ben-Yusuf was a more traditionally networked Arab 
you know, Arabic speaking kind of guy from the Tunisian South who was more popular in less Francophone parts of the country. And for a while, the French had captured um, both of these guys. Um, as the de various decolonization movements around the world picked up steam, the French started wanting to look for ways to pull out of North Africa while retaining their power. Um, so the French ended up kind of backing Hadi Bourguiba, the Sorbonne-educated lawyer, because at some point they figured independence looks like it's going to happen. So we could either have Bourguiba, who speaks French, he's pretty comfortable working with the French and having a sort of working functional understanding, or we could have this other guy, Ben Youssef, who is more of an Arabic speaker, um, he, he's a, more of a hardliner, and Tunisia became independent in 1956. Bourguiba then moved to consolidate his power, and Bourguiba ended up rigging the game so that all 98 seats in that assembly were decided by his own party. Even though he preached the words of democracy and used pro-democratic rhetoric a great deal in his speeches in 1956, he really didn't practice what he preached. Yeah, I, I, I was going to ask, um, could you tell us about his time in office? We can kind of break the Bourguiba period down into a period of where he was making a lot of reforms in about the first 10 years of his rule, and then into the, the later period where the whole game of Tunisian politics became the question of who is going to succeed Bourguiba. So anyway, Bourguiba, in his reform period, he passed um, what became a very famous personal status code relating to women's rights. It, it, was, um, it was a quantum leap forward for women's rights in the um, Arab world. You know, the later periods of, of Bourguiba's rule, from about 1966, um, to 1987, really the, the one dominant question in Tunisian politics becomes simply, who's going to replace this guy? Because he was getting old. He was getting really old. And there was a lot of hand-wringing because as Bourguiba got older and more fragile and even a bit senile in the 1980s, social problems were mounting. Some of the economic reforms he tried to push through in the 1960s weren't working. In fact, they were backfiring. So you had these social tensions. Bourguiba tried to play a game that other Arab dictators have played, which is he tried to counterbalance leftists slash communists on one hand and Islamists on the other hand. And he would try to play these groups off of one, one another. As Bourguiba gets older and even more senile, there becomes a big question about whether he's going to um, assassinate, basically murder, the leader of the Islamist movement, Rashid Ghanoushi. And all observers were very afraid that Bourguiba would kill this guy and that the movement, the Islamist movement, would become violent. And at that point in 1987 is when uh, Zine Abedin al-Ben Ali, Zine al -Abedin ben Ali um, who had been his national security director, um, Bourguiba's national security director, steps in and becomes president. And this is a huge moment of relief for Tunisian society and for the international um, community. And it looks for a moment like the country is in the hands of Ben Ali, who was talking about wanting to democratize at the time. Right. Using the same tactics that Bourguiba did. Yeah. I mean, both Bourguiba and Ben Ali talked a lot about the importance of democracy. But then, of course, we know how the story is ended. <laughs> both of these leaders 
became um, became despots who didn't respect those those principles. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, Ben Ali's time in office? In the late 2000s, you saw um, a lot of these problems that have been percolating in Tunisian society for decades. The problem of having a lot of educated young people without enough jobs. The problem of having an interior and a south that weren't nearly as developed as the coastal regions. A lot of these problems started getting even worse. Combined with that, Ben Ali had now been in office for you know, going on 20 years, and it became completely unclear whether he would just keep changing the constitution to stay in office forever, or whether he would pick a successor, or whether that successor might even be his wife, the much-hated Leila Trabelsi. Everything boiled over in December 2010, which is the month when Mohamed Bouazizi, the um, fruit, fruit or vegetable vendor from the interior town of Sidi Bouzid, which is a very hard scrabble, poor town um, in the center of Tunisia, he got in an argument with a police officer, a female police officer, who said he didn't have the right weights or measures um, or the right license, but he got in an argument with this police officer and she kicked, apparently she kicked over his fruit or vegetable cart. And this made him very angry. And he um, said, you know, how can I make a living in this country? And, and he covered himself in lighter oil and set himself on fire on the street in downtown city Bouzid, right in front of the courthouse. And his self-immolation was not the first other young people had self-immolated as a form of protest before him and after him. But um, for various reasons, Boazizi's suicide really hit a nerve. It spoke to people's rage at police corruption, um, you know, at, at heavy levels of corruption that seemed to victimize the poorest people while enabling the elites. Anger erupted onto the streets today. Riot police rushing a crowd carrying banners reading, yes, we can, using tear gas and then live rounds to disperse them. It was enough to bring down the government and force the nation's president to flee. So how did it, how did the protest start? So the protest began in Sidi Bouzid and other hard scrabble towns like it in the interior and south of Tunisia. People would share information um, through word of mouth and on social media. And they would often spon quite spontaneously gather at um, local labor union headquarters. So a lot of people would gather there um, and start marches um, to places like the courthouse or police stations. They might um, throw things at a police station, burn a police station. Remember, Tunisia was a police state. The police were the most visible um, uh, manifestation of corrupt, abusive state power. Um, so these started, these sorts of protests started happening and eventually moved to the capital. So by early January of 2011, you had large protests in the capital of Tunis. And on January 14, 2011, um, huge protests in the capital of Tunis, which had at that point been lasting for a few days, um, resulted in Ben Ali getting on a plane and flying to Saudi Arabia. And it's still unclear whether Ben Ali planned to fly back to Tunisia 
or whether he was tucking tail and running for the rest of his life. Now, Aya, we'd like to hear from you about your personal experience during the Arab Spring. Like many of my friends and comrades, we were mobilizing, organizing, reporting to the world what was going on, using social media, uh, using new ways of activism. Uh, I was also part of different civil society groups before the revolution, so I found myself uh, from protesting and blogging to organizing blood donation with the Red Cross and um, organizing with children organization at the refugee camps um, on the Tunisian Lebanon borders. Um, I got my camera confiscated twice, <laughs> arrested a couple of times, uh, abused by the police. And I was I was uh, trying to remember one moment that um, really memorable in the revolution. And I think it it is the 14th of January. It's a, a moment of breathing freedom, um, even though with all the trouble that came after a few weeks, like the chaos, the snipers, the government militia, I think the feeling of freedom uh, and unity and solidarity were worth uh, breaking the fear and worth that we are still struggling to achieve today. How, how did it feel to breathe freedom, so to speak? I mean, what was it like that moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in, in Tunisia, we never actually celebrated the revolution because many things happened later. But I remember that moment very well because you feel that you have been suffocated for a long time and it's an accumulation of a lot of repression. And then you have that moment that you feel you've actually did it. So it's like we made we changed the course of history and we changed um we overthrew the regime we overthrew the uh, dictatorship and he's gone but the feeling that now that you own the street and the street belongs to the people and belongs to you monica so then how did the elections happen the elections happened pretty swiftly i mean if you think that the that Ben Ali didn't leave until january 14th 2011 the elections happened in late october of 2011 so that's very fast to organize nationwide elections and give different parties a chance to campaign. Um, it was that summer, um, the summer of 2011, I remember, was a fascinating and chaotic time in Tunisia. You know, it was not a kind of natural democratic overflow, um, as if Tunisia was a boiling pot. And all of a sudden, the revolution took the lid off that pot. And then all of these differences in society, differences of opinion, ideology, belief, politics started boiling over. And it was it was um, exciting and fascinating and a little bit scary all at once. <laughs> so uh, who ended up winning the election? The, the parties that did the best in the October 2011 elections, the first free and fair elections Tunisia ever had, were, first of all, the um, Islamist party, Anatha whose name means the Renaissance or the rebirth in Arabic. And also won the most. It won a plurality of votes, but it didn't, crucially, it did not win a majority. So it didn't win 50% 50 or higher. Um, it won about 41% of the votes. Um, so it, it didn't get enough votes that it could govern alone. It had to go into coalition with other parties. You know, a lot of the conversation about Tunisian politics after the revolution focused very strongly on the supposed ideological divide between so-called secularists and so-called Islamists. One of the ideas or assumptions was that if you have an Islamist party that gets elected, in a democracy, in a democratic state, it's very, very dangerous because Islamist parties are at their very base, according to the assumption, Islamo-fascist parties, 
whose only desire is to gobble up the democratic space and use democracy as a means to a very undemocratic end. So to, in other words, capture the state. So, so when Anafa won the elections in 2011, it was a really important moment to test this assumption. You don't have many examples of this. So Tunisia became a really interesting, almost like test case. In March of 2011, Rashid Ghanoushi gave interviews in which he said that Anafa, his party, supported a style of voting, a voting system, proportional representation, a style of proportional representation that would actually result in them winning the least amount of seats, okay? They, they had the opportunity in early 2011 to, to throw their weight behind a style of electoral competition that looked more like what they have in the UK, first past the post. And in that style of voting, it really benefits the largest party. So had Anatha really thrown its weight behind that and had Tunisia gone with that, Anatha would have won the October 2011 elections by over 90% of the vote. Wow. But they didn't. And that's really interesting because in, in some way, Anatha was helping to build an electoral system that would contain their power. Um, and, the, and the reason why was very self-interested. <laughs> you know, it was very smart, very self-interested. And not to realize that if they won over 90% of the vote, that would spook people. It would scare people. It would scare other Tunisians and other internationals. And it would probably have nixed, ruined the entire democratic experiment in Tunisia because so many people would have been afraid that the Islamists were taking over. It would have created an excellent constituency for a coup, which is correct. Things continue for a while, right? For a couple of years. And then there's a really interesting turning point in 2013. There was a crucial moment in summer 2013 when the entire democratic experiment almost fell apart. It was also a very rocky period in Tunisia's transition because, you know, as we know from studying revolutions, Almost every revolution has what's called a J-curve after it happens. Um, it's a period where the economy um, does a lot worse and where there's more political instability. So unsurprisingly, the, the so-called Troika government, which was the coalition of Anatha and the two secular parties, this government was seen as being a big failure. <laughs> so the combination of economic problems and security problems combined with the fact that you had this huge upset where the political leaders were really a threat to entrenched interests and powerful elites, um, it made for a very volatile situation um, where a lot of people were kind of hungry to get these guys out of power. Um, they had promised that they would write the constitution within one year, but that was a logical impossibility. It would have been completely impossible to write a democratically representative constitution in that time. But they promised they would. So when the year came and went, you had a number of people, including the current president, Bejikai de Sebsi, say they're no longer legitimate. In summer of 2013, there had been two political assassinations of leftist politicians. These assassinations happened. Um, they were claimed by jihadists. But at the time, they were largely blamed on the Islamist party, Anatha. And folks who were very against this party wasted no time in pinning the blame on them and said, this is just yet another reason why the government and the constituent assembly are illegitimate and they need to go. And had it succeeded in forcibly pushing the not only the government, but also the constituent assembly out of power, that would have probably destroyed Tunisia's democratic experiment. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Instead, a lengthy dialogue process started in which 
the current president of Tunisia, Beji Kaida Sebsi, who fashioned himself as a new Bergiba, um, very anti-Islamist, very much against Anatha, sat down for talks with the president of Anatha, Rashid Hanoushi, and they started opening the way for dialogue. And the dialogue's mediators ended up winning the Nobel Prize. They, they were four civil society groups that they all had dogs in the fight. They were not unbiased actors, but they ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts. And Tunisia came through it. Yes, and the, and the Constitution was passed in January 2014. And how, how is it going with its implementation? Oh, well, no, no, that's a very important question. Not fast enough. So it, the Constitution, which was passed in 2014, is a very good one. In some ways, it's more democratic and more progressive than many Western constitutions. The problem is the legal code comes from the old dictatorship periods, and it hasn't been reformed yet. So there are still very, very problematic laws on the books that criminalize insulting the president, for example, or insulting the state. You know, these are very vague precepts that were built so that they could be used and abused by dictators. And until they're reformed, Tunisia isn't safe. Scott, uh, what is a de facto type of government in Tunisia? So it's a what I would characterize as a hybrid system, presidential and, and parliamentary. There are reasons for that mixed system, not necessarily based on efficiency. It, one of the key things that I think transpired from the tumultuous events in 2011 that overthrew then autocrat Zine Abdin Ben Ali was putting in place a system that would lend itself to some better balancing of power effect. Uh, there were forces in the country that wanted to very much put this sort of the, the balance of power in favor of parliament. Um, but also, I think there was concern about the effectiveness of parliament and a, a prime ministerial government um, being able to run the show in the country and concerns about security. Uh, and so it, it preserved in some form a, a, a president and, and presidential attributes of a presidential system as well. So, Scott, who is the current leader? How did we get that leadership. In 2014, Tunisia held parliamentary elections and they held elections for president. President is uh, Beji Kadel Sebsi, is an important figure in Tunisia right now because his experience in Tunisian government goes all the way back to the Bourguiba era. He is an octogenarian. So um, in that way, a very much a notable uh, unifying figure in the country who was, yes, part of the old party that ran Tunisia, but was not perceived to be, um, I think, part of um, the problem, part of the predatory class, because they have this mixed system. There's, of course, a prime minister. There have been several prime ministers since the 2014 election. What's, I think, most notable about the government is that in Tunisia, you have right now a governing coalition that includes both the largest uh, uh, nationalist party, uh, Nita Tunis, and also the um, largest uh, Islamist party, Anatta. It includes other parties as well. But the fact that you have a governing a governing coalition uh, with both this nationalist, more secular party, and Islamist participatory in government uh, is is a notable and unique thing about Tunisia, which once again I think has potentially. Um, enormous implications and, and, and 
and potentially very positive implications for the broader region. Now, Aya, in, in talking about the mood on the streets, how is that mood today? It's never a post-revolution period. It's been an ongoing kind of prolonged campaign. Um, people are still protesting. And just earlier this uh, this year, we had uh, 2,000 people marching for anti-corruption against uh, an amnesty law. And the feelings in Tunisia today is mixed. Is Obviously, we are exhausted of um, changing in the government. We changed, I think I lost counting, we changed the government five or six times. The sole demand of the revolution is employment, dignity, and freedom. And uh, we have freedom now, and we're still trying to protect it, but uh, employment is on the rise. It's increasing um, since 2011. Um, and also, if you get out of the capital of Tunis, you're still pretty much underdeveloping, and you still see poverty, and you still see uh, people's life, daily lives are not changing. Um, Scott, what is Tunisia's relationship to its neighbors, and how does that play into the regional power dynamics? Yeah, sure. So Tunisia's neighbors are Libya and Algeria. One of those, Libya is, for all intents and purposes, a, a failed state at this point. That has incredibly important consequences um, on Tunisia right now and um, and the transition, and it flows in a couple of ways. Um, so, for one thing, because of the, the Libyan state's oil wealth, uh, Libya could be um, a huge economic benefit for Tunisia and... Uh, a jobs creator for many Tunisians who are not employed. Only that's not really possible because of the security dynamic there. And to the contrary, um, you have a situation where um, in at least one dramatic instance um, in uh, Ben Gurdan, uh, there was an, a cross-border incursion by ISIS to try and take over a, a city in southern Tunisia, effectively uh, repelled eventually, but nonetheless, that's sort of the dynamic down at that um, at that southern border. Um, likewise, uh, and, and regrettably, you have far too many Tunisians going into Libya at this point and joining those types of groups like like ISIS. Um, but I think the issue really now is this sort of problem with uh, a security vacuum in Libya and ultimately how that is impacting the situation in Tunisia and regrettably how were Libya in a better better situation, it would actually help solve many of Tunisia's problems. The Algerian border is a little more straightforward. Um, it is porous, not completely secured. There's all kinds of contraband going back and forth across that border. There too, Tunisia is fighting insurgents in the mountains, um, Islamic radicals. Overall, though, I would say there is a there is a much more constructive relationship that's going on, and Algeria is, is much more of a um, of a partner to Tunisia, um, given that it is able to maintain some semblance of of stability and. Um, doesn't have the the sort of the degree of destabilizing effect that you, that you see from Libya. The question, of course, is from how long for how long because the the president of Algeria is is not well and there's expected to be at some point a leadership transition there. So, Aya, what to you are the key political issues facing Tunisia right now? <laughs> I would say, well, politically, I would say um, the inter-party rivalries that are going on and the fragile governance uh, in general, partly because of the change of 
governments, as I said, five or six times. For those who aren't very familiar with Tunisia, could you explain a little bit more what are those inter-party rivalries? I mean, basically the polarization between Islamists and secularists um, that has been throughout uh, the um, first the Constituent Assembly elections and then um, after writing the Constitution, the 2014 elections. Um, and that was a polarization um, that divided many Tunisians on the vote, but also now, even with the coalition and the coalition-style politics that um, is working partly, but also is kind of putting all the rivalries um, under the rag or not visible, but it's like the silence before the storm. Um, and within the parties themselves, there are a lot of rivalries. And that uh, when that comes out in different scandals, it's only... For me, I think widens the gap between the government and the people's trust to the government. And I think the, the trust in this period is very important because we will not work on long-term strategies and we will still just look at the next election. With some polling, public opinion polling that IRI has done, um, we see that consistently uh, the number of, of people that say the country is going in the wrong direction is in the 70-plus range. Uh, right now it's up in the 80s, or at least it was as of about May. Um, and the fact that that number is so negatively disposed and so so sticky with respect to its its uh, negative um, its negative trend is troubling. Uh, something else that um, I've noticed of late, uh, again with uh, public opinion polling data, uh, is that people are becoming more disillusioned about their economic future and more people are saying they are having a harder and harder time to to make ends meet. And so that's a pretty um, alarming cocktail. Maybe elaborate just a little bit more about this wrong direction. I mean, what else do you think is behind it aside from just sort of uh, this high expectations that you get after a lot of political turmoil, unsettled sort of political system? I mean, what else is behind it? And then what, when you present this information to Tunisian leaders, what's their reaction? I'll start with the second part of that. When we present this kind of information to Tunisian leaders, at this point, there's not surprise. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I would actually say I'm encouraged by the degree to which they feel a sense of urgency in doing something about the situation. Um, because let's face it, people aren't patient forever and nobody knows really uh, how long Tunisians are willing to be patient uh, with respect to the the political transition they're going through, providing the dividends they, they want. And I think that's really the crux of the first part of, of your question. The solution, in a way, is simple. Democracy needs to deliver. And right now, they don't feel like it's delivering. And when I say deliver, I don't just mean they're holding elections have the right to say what they want in the town square. They're hoping for improved quality of life, for economic opportunity. Uh, that is especially true, I think, with respect to young people. And so far... Democracy hasn't delivered in those ways for them. Now, Aya, of course, there's an important issue that's been in the media lately and, and continues to be important, um, which is gender and the discussion of gender issues. Uh, what are your thoughts on sort of where that conversation is today and um, how do you feel it is being addressed and, and what, what else needs to happen? I, I think there is no democracy without the contribution of women. Uh, and without female leadership and gender equality. And these couple of months, some of the issues that the feminist movement have, has been long fighting for are seeing the light. Um, and what example, are those issues? Law, for example, equal inheritance. 
and uh, marriage of women with non-Muslims. And um, there have been a lot of debate actually since the, the president's statement on the Women's Day on 13th of August uh, about all these issues. There is an ongoing debate. Even at home with my mom, <laughs> the whole, this whole week, we're debating uh, what Sharia says about equal inheritance and what we live in today and um, what the law has to you know, offer and protect to all people. Obviously, women have been on the front line of the revolution. And then um, there have been um, a quite good uh, push for uh, women political participation and women running for office and all of that is great. But I think we still don't have fundamental conversations about social and economic issues. Scott, you know, it's interesting because uh, although Tunisia is a democratic country, we still have this, we see this problem with many Tunisians joining extremist groups and going to Syria and fighting in Libya. Uh, why do you think that is? Yeah, so, you know, a lot has been made about Tunisia being the largest supplier of, of fighters for conflicts in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon. Um, I, so, first of all, I don't believe the numbers um, because the numbers presuppose that Egypt and states in the Gulf and Algeria are giving you accurate information about the number of people from those countries going to fight. And, you know, what we know is those countries lie all the time. So I don't actually believe that Tunisia is the largest supplier of, of foreign fighters. I do, though, um, uh, think that they are a, a significant supplier, uh, especially when you sort of break it down per capita. And when you look at uh, Tunisia's being sort of like a middle-income country, uh, where you have educated young men and women, uh, it's sort of shocking that you see the numbers that you see about Tunisians going off to to fight. Um, with respect to the why, there's a lot of different theories about this, um, but clearly the one of the one of the motivating factors I think we see globally about radicalization um, relates to feelings of alienation and also. Um, one, not having um, respect or a sense of purpose in, in life. So in the Tunisian case, you're talking about um, a lot of people that are young and educated with university degrees. Um, unemployment among college graduates in Tunisia is 30%. That's much higher than the overall unemployment rate in the country. I think that's about 17% or something like that. Um, the point is not that, well, if Tunisians had a job, they wouldn't join a terrorist group. Um, but the gap between one's expectations about what they can achieve in life and the reality of it uh, breeds, I think, bitterness and frustration and a desire to give purpose to one's life. And that is a very prominent part of frustration in, in in Tunisia, and I think it's a I think it's a push factor um, for why people are inclined to join these groups. We've seen other things as well, uh, based on research IRI is doing at uh, at um, uh, in local communities in Tunisia about sort of like localized drivers. And I think it's very important to approach this problem in that way uh, because my my personal sense is that uh, there's not. There's, there's, not a, there's not a pathway to radicalization. There are very different localized factors in different communities within a country, yeah. right, let alone among countries. For me, I don't think this is a question that's up for debate, but Scott, do you think 
it is fair to say that Tunisia is the lone success of the Arab Spring. I look at this in a couple of ways. A lot of people in the West, and I think in Washington here, talk about the Arab Spring like it was kind of the last hope for democracy in the Arab world, uh, as opposed to the first convulsion. People in the region, I think, have a very different mindset about what the Arab Spring was and what it may have started to catalyze than, than we have here. Of course, for folks living in the West and Europe, you look at what's going on, and it's scary because you have security vacuums, failing states, ISIS, uncontrolled migration. Um, but with respect to the motivations behind the Arab Spring and what it catalyzed among uh, Arab people and efforts to redefine the relationships that they have with government and their leaders, I think people view it as very much something that is in progress as opposed to failed or over. Now, Aya, what is, in your view, sort of the trajectory moving forward of, of Tunisia's democracy? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm always uh, hopeful and optimistic for my country's future. Um, not because of its current leadership, <laughs> but because of its Youth. I think we have a bright youth, and that can only bring bright future. Um, and I believe the political scene will soon change from old faces to our generation faces. Many of my circle of uh, comrades and networks want to run for future elections, and I see in many of them authentic leaders and role models. So, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing Tunisia in the next five, ten years? Oh, there are many. <laughs> um, there are many, but I think. The top of the list would be really corruption. Um, I mean, the current discussion of the bill that gives this amnesty to corrupt businessmen is, is a huge threat to the revolution gains. Um, uh, that's why the ongoing campaign going on is important. And I think we need to find out to fight not only for progressive laws to be um, to, to pass, but also the implementation of these laws. Now, Mr. Mastic, if there was an international time capsule that was going to be shot off into space uh, and something had to be put in there unique to Tunisia, a representative of Tunisians, what would it be? Probably something representative of the Jasmine Revolution, which Tunisia's uh, Arab Spring events is, is broadly known as. It might be literally jasmine flowers. Um, it might be um, that and their new constitution. Uh, which is something that is a standout in this part of the world. So, JT, um, you know, if our listeners only remember three things from this episode, what do you think the first one would be? Well, the first one uh, is that Tunisia seems to be the lone success of the Arab Spring because of that. Um, it's important for the global community to support this fragile new democracy as much as it can. Yeah, and that leads me to what I think is the second takeaway, which is there's so much potential in Tunisia um, in terms of youth and agriculture and tourism. But the government needs to continue on this path to reform to ensure the country reaches that potential. That's right. And that leads to the third takeaway. Um, and going back to Scott Mastic's interview, democracy needs to deliver in Tunisia. And this is something that has to be followed up with strong government reform, citizen engagement, and really staying true to those, re those ideals that really embodied what the revolution was all about. Let me know.
have to thank all of our guests that we had. They were sure. great. Um, Monica. Yeah, she was she's great. She's so knowledgeable and fascinating to talk to. Like an encyclopedia yeah. of just Amazing. Tunisia. Yeah. It was great. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Monica L. Marks with a K. And then there's Aya Chebi. And she really gave us a good youth perspective of what is going on today. Follow her on Twitter. Uh, her Twitter handle is Aya, A-Y-A underscore Chebby, C-H-E-B-B-I. And then lastly, we've got our famous director, Scott Mastic. World famous. Yeah, well, no, In- mostly. Infamous. And he's at S Mastic. Smastic. Smastic. <laughs> on today's episode, we've heard some great Tunisian music, including Entia Sut, and and of course the Tunisian national anthem. Our theme music was composed by Alex Hollinghead. So we need to end this episode with a little bit of bad news. Uh, unfortunately, Sam Johannes has departed IRI and he will no longer be a podcast host. But he's doing great things now. Sam, where are you? I'm taking a job with the uh, Nuclear Security Working Group uh, and, and will be beginning a, a security studies program at George Washington University. Yeah, he's going to go on to do to save the world from uh, North Korea and other nuclear states. Well, you know, um, podcasting, thermonuclear war, all of this is, uh, is incredibly uh, important work. Yeah, well, you'll definitely be missing. I appreciate that. So the hint for next episode is, in this country, Sinclair, it is customary or common to roller skate to church with your family on Christmas Day. That is bizarre, but really cool. Really cool. If you know the answer, leave this in a review on iTunes or email us at podcast at iri.org, and we'll give you a shout out on the air. Until next time.